So tonight is the night each year where we remember not only the celebration of the table of our Lord, but the first celebration of the Lord's table 2,000 years ago on this night, the night in which He will be ultimately betrayed and arrested. Uh, And I was thinking about uh, that first night, and it struck me this year that um, one significant component of that first table of our Lord was that there were both kings and traitors at the meal. Now, I don't think that's a a wild insight. If I said there was a king and a traitor at the meal, I'd say, who was the king? You would say the king was Jesus. That's always a safe answer in church. And if I said there was a traitor in the meal, you'd say the traitor was Judas. Okay, fantastic. So if there's a king and a traitor at this meal, that's kind of what we'd expect. But I think there are kings and traitors at this meal. That's a little different. So let's think about traitors first, and let's begin with the traitor that we're most familiar with. Let's talk about Judas. Uh, So Judas is an interesting figure in Scripture. He gets um, not a ton of attention. Um, We know a little bit about him. We know Iscariot probably means uh, that he was from a village in southern Judea, um, Ish-Karioth in Hebrew, a man of Karioth. Significant only because he's the only one of the twelve that didn't come from Galilee. Uh, We know he liked to take money out of the common purse, stole a little bit uh, for his own needs. And other than that, we know very little about him except that he betrayed Jesus. And and if we want to define traitor, uh, let's use this definition. A traitor is someone who um, with their mouth promises to obey one master and with their deeds obeys another. Um, With their mouth promises to obey one master, with their deeds obeys another Judas is, is clearly unique in the story of the Bible, and um, there's, there's a reason he's the most infamous traitor of all time. Um, but I know a number of folks that really struggle with Judas. They struggle with him because it feels like maybe it's not really fair. We, we read earlier, well, Satan entered him, so did he have any choice in the matter? And um, boy, it just seems kind of sudden that he goes down this path. Jesus speaks to this a little bit. Uh, Jesus says, the one who betrays me is with me. His hand is on the table, for the Son of Man is going as has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed, Uh, suggesting uh, that Judas has some free choice in the matter, right? That Judas isn't being forced into this decision. Um, In a nutshell, Jesus welcomed Judas into his inner circle, into his family. He trusted him with his life and ultimately Jesus loses his life because of that trust. So Judas, clearly a traitor. But I want to think about the other people around the table uh, on that first night. Because I think Judas isn't the only person who perhaps might receive that label, if we're honest. We know what happens later in the night. We know, uh, as Jesus told us in this passage, that Peter will deny even knowing him three times, which is certainly a kind of betrayal, especially after Peter so courageously proclaims that he will never denounce him. We know all the other apostles will run off and hide. No one will stand by him in this hour. We know they can't even stay awake um, when Jesus asks them to stay awake and pray. But even before all of that, I think we begin to get a glimpse that the disciples 
are claiming to serve one master, but with their actions serving another. There's a really interesting thing that happens here um, in verses 23 and 24. In, in verse 23, Jesus has just dropped a bombshell. One of you guys is going to betray me tonight. And naturally, they start arguing about who that's going to be. And then in verse 24, they're having a totally different conversation. Uh, a dispute begins among them about which one of them was the greatest. Now, I imagine that happens naturally, right? I imagine um, they're saying, well, I think you're going to betray Jesus, Peter. No, I would never betray Jesus. Look at all the things I've done to be faithful. I've done more than you've done, John. No, you haven't. I've done more than you've done. I would never betray Jesus. Well, I'm the greatest disciple. No, I'm the greatest. But isn't it interesting how quickly that conversation changes? And they fall into an argument and a pattern that's not new to them, right? That many times throughout Scripture... Uh, the disciples have this fight, right, about who should um, be the, the leader of their team. Uh, and in the midst of, of a night where Jesus has been teaching about His own self-sacrifice, um, there's a betrayal of His teaching here um, that not just Judas, but all the other eleven betray the project of this new kingdom that Jesus is trying to create and what this kingdom is supposed to be about. So, um, Jesus has an interesting comment here. He says, the Gentiles lord it over each other, and they call their great ones benefactors. It's helpful to understand how the politics of the Greco-Roman world worked. So, um, in the Greco-Roman world, there would be um, cities, and there were state, uh, you know, regions, let's call them states, and of course, there's the whole empire. And they had taxes. Yay, taxes. Uh, and, and they had taxes like we do, right, for local and regional and, and sort of national bodies. Um, but the taxes weren't sufficient to meet all the needs of the community. And so, they were really reliant on like private donations from rich people. And those private donations didn't come with any kind of organization. So, it's not like somebody said, we need to buy 10 new pews. Each pew costs 150 bucks. Who wants to pay for a pew? Instead, the rich people just came in and said, hey, I feel like donating a temple, and so I'm going to donate a temple today. Uh, and it was sort of on the whim of the giver. And in their culture, the way you gained um, prestige and public office and status um, was often from making these private donations. So there becomes a cycle. Uh, Joel Green talks about it. He says, um, the, the wealthy were legitimated as having the most deserving um, or being the most deserving of public office and prestige um, because in order to provide leadership, you had to be wealthy to make these donations. So only the wealthy could provide leadership, and therefore only the wealthy could enjoy honor and self-advancement reserved for those who gave so generously. The Concern in this text, then, is not with the abuses of the system, but with the nature of the system itself. So, in their world, the way you got to be important was um, you gave money away, and then people said, wow, you're great, and you were rewarded for giving your money with power and status and prestige and probably more money. So, all the generosity of time and service in that culture was kind of self-serving, right? You got something out of it a lot out of it. And here are the apostles arguing with Jesus about this whole idea of who's the best because they want to get something out of it. 
Right? What are we going to get out of this service? What status or prestige or honor will we get for following Jesus? Uh, there was a guy named Roy de Lamont who was the chaplain at Payne College in Georgia years ago, uh, and he is famous for preaching the shortest sermon ever preached at Payne College. It may be the sor- shortest sermon ever preached, um, but it had a really long sermon title. So the title of his sermon was, What Does Christ Answer When We Ask, Lord, What's in Religion for Me? Okay, what, this is the title of his sermon. What does Christ ask, answer when we ask, Lord, what's in religion for me? And the entirety of his sermon was one word, which was nothing. Nothing. Nothing's in it for you. By the way, um, you'll never get a sermon that short, so don't even get excited about it. Um, when they asked him um, why that was the sermon he delivered that day, he said, I-, I feel as though our culture and our church has become consumed with what can I get? What can I get out of the people around me or the, um, even my religion or even my God? They said, how long did it take you to write that sermon? He said, 20 years, 20 years. Uh-huh. And, and I, I love this idea uh, that Jesus is imagining a different kind of kingdom where those who serve do it not to get anything. And the fact that the disciples don't understand that is a kind of betrayal, right? that they're imagining and envisioning a different kind of kingdom. Something else really basic happens here that's interesting. As Jesus has been discussing His impending death and His impending betrayal, uh, the disciples have only a limited amount of bandwidth for that conversation. And then they kind of shift back to themselves again, right? Yeah, boy, Jesus dying, that'd be bad. But when He does die, who should be the leader, right? Who's going to be the best? And, and I wonder um, if this isn't also a kind of betrayal that supposedly He is the center of their life and faith, but in practice, um, they seem to have a master which is themselves. And I wonder how often we do this. I wonder how often we exercise self-centeredness in the midst of other people's problems. Um, Their crises reveal our selfishness. Uh, There's an old story about a lady who uh, answered a knock on her door to find a man there with a sad expression on his face. He said, I'm sorry to disturb you, but I'm um, going door to door collecting money for an unfortunate family in our neighborhood. The husband is out of work. The kids are hungry. The utilities will soon be cut off. And worse, they're going to be kicked out of their apartment this afternoon if they can't pay their rent. The woman said, oh my gosh, I'd be happy to help. That's so horrible. Uh, And then she said, with a little bit of confusion, but I'm sorry, sir, who are you? And he said, oh, I'm their landlord. (laughs) To be a traitor is to vow to serve one master with while your actions you serve another. And I wonder how often um, we, knowing the incredible love and service and sacrifice, even the betrayal of our Lord, um, are grateful for a moment and then move on to our own self-centeredness and concerns. See, I think All disciples are traitors 
at some point. There would be no need for Good Friday to follow Monday, Thursday if that wasn't true. Every one of us at some point has vowed to place Christ first and then served another master. The good news of this night is that even if you are a traitor, there's room at this table for you. Okay, we talked about traitors. Let's talk about kings. Uh, one king, obviously, um, who, who reigns at this table is Jesus. And, and Jesus, even in our passage, describes His coming kingdom. He talks about my table and my kingdom. Uh, and we understand that Jesus is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. But He has a really interesting conversation about other kings In our reading tonight, he says in verse 28 to the disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you just as my Father has conferred on me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, This is a really interesting moment. Clearly, Jesus is not saying um, that the disciples will be equal to Him, right? They're still sitting at His table and His kingdom. Um, but He does say, as my, just as my Father conferred on me, so I confer on you a kingdom. He does say they will sit in thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, and, and this idea that the disciples will somehow be royalty is, yes, somewhat unique to them, right? I I don't imagine that when I get to heaven, there's a throne waiting for me. But Peter takes this very same idea, and he applies it to all Christians. Uh, And in his first letter to all the churches in the diaspora, Peter says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people called out of darkness into His marvelous light. A royal priesthood. He says, you are queens and kings. And the kingdom that that Christ confers upon the apostles here, He confers upon all believers. In fact, He even says this in chapter 12, verse 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And in this conversation about what it means to be royalty, um, Jesus has one very simple expectation of the disciples. He says, um, you will receive royalty, you will receive the kingdom, you will sit on thrones because you are those who have stood by me in my trials. So what does standing by Jesus look like? Well, for three years, uh, the disciples have literally stood by Jesus in the midst of all kinds of, of um, exciting and terrifying and rewarding and scary moments. But we know, as we've just been told by Jesus, that they're going to fall away tonight. They're not going to stand by Him in His greatest trial. And yet still, they're going to sit on thrones and be kings. And so, Jesus seems to suggest that we can be royalty, we can stand by Him, even if we fall away, if we will turn back afterwards. That 
that standing by Jesus is not about living a perfect life, but about living a consistent one, about when we, um, we fall away, we turn back and we strengthen others as he instructs Peter. So I, I've been reading um, with uh, my son Jonathan, I've been reading The Lord of the Rings again, I, probably one of my favorite books of all time. And, and I have this um, sort of Bible-looking version of Lord of the Rings. Um, it's leather-bound and it's big and it's got gold letters on it. Um, and it just gives you a sense of like, you know, this is a big deal book to me, right? Uh, and, and I've been thinking as we get near the end of Lord of the Rings, um, who my favorite character is. And if you don't know the book, this is your fault. You need to go read it. Um, I've been thinking about who my favorite character is. And uh, there's a number of folks that might fall into that category. There's Gandalf the wizard, who really is the organizer of the plan of salvation. There's, there's Strider, or Aragorn, the king who establishes the new kingdom on earth. There's Frodo, who bears the, all evil in his own body until finally evil defeats itself. But my favorite character is Sam. Uh, and, and Sam, or, or Samwise Gamgee, is the gardener and the butler and the servant of Frodo. And, and Sam's my favorite character in Lord of the Rings because um, he really only does one thing well. Sam is not a great warrior. He doesn't kill a bunch of monsters. He's not a great wizard. He doesn't cast any spells. He's not a political leader. He leads no armies. Sam doesn't even have a lot to contribute. Uh, he, he doesn't even know the way to the destination where they're going. Sam just does one thing well. He will not leave Frodo alone. And whatever happens on their journey, he stands by Frodo. Uh, this happens in all kinds of, of incredible moments. Uh, there's a moment where Frodo is trying to flee all of his friends to avoid putting them in danger, and Sam figures out what he's doing because he knows his master so well, and he rushes to the water and actually risks his own life, forcing Frodo to stop escaping and come back and save him so he won't leave on his own. There's a, a moment where um, Frodo can no longer walk on his own, and so Sam literally puts him on his back and carries him up a mountain. Uh, and at the end of their journey, after they've destroyed the ring, after evil has been defeated, they're sitting on a mountain, really a volcano that's erupting, um, and there's, at this point, uh, no hope for them to escape. And, and Frodo says, I'm glad you're with me, Sam, here at the end of all things. I love Sam because in the midst of incredible doubt and fear and grief and pain and loss, he just keeps doing one thing really well. He won't leave Frodo alone. And Sam understands that he is not the hero of his story. See, I think this is what the disciples get. This is what we're supposed to get. We're not the hero of our story. We're supposed to be the sidekick. We're supposed to be Robin to Jesus' Batman, right? Hermione to, to Harry's Harry Potter. Um, we're, we're supposed to be the ones who are totally devoted just to one person, just to Jesus, even as His thoughts are entirely bent on salvation for us. And what's so incredible about the story of, of Sam is at the end of it, after he has stood by Frodo, after they are rescued, uh, defying all odds, 
um, after they return safely uh, to um, all of the heroes of Middle-earth. Um, there are incredible accolades and praises and celebrations. And everything that happens for Frodo also happens for Sam, which is interesting because Frodo's the leader, right? He had the, the plan. He knew the destination. He did the hardest work. He actually carried the ring all the way to Mount Doom. He lost a finger in the process. He almost died. Um, but everything in terms of celebration that happens for Frodo happens identically for Sam, even though all he did was just stand by his master. And at the end, after thousands of knees are bowed before Frodo and Sam, and after um, hymns are sung in their honor, Frodo and Sam both sit down upon the throne of the new king. See, this table is a table of kings and of traitors. At the first table of the Lord, there was just one person who was not to become a traitor, and there was just one person who was not to become a king. At the last table of the Lord, those who stand by Jesus in His trials will eat and drink together with their Master and share in His joy. But at this table of the Lord, there's still the possibility for change. This table tonight is a table that's set by the one king who was never a traitor for all the traitors who might one day become kings. All are welcome, traitors and royals alike. Which are you? And which are you becoming? Thanks be to God. Amen.